Women weren't dangerous to Jesus, nor were they less than or second-class citizens to men. He didn't tell them to hide their bodies, quiet their voices, or stay at home, but rather invited them into his inner circles. Instead of being banished to the background, women were empowered with influence and authority. Risk-taking, out-of-the-box women who didn't have a place in cultural or religious circles had powerful roles to play in God's kingdom, and they flourished. They put their lives on the line for the gospel. The more I read the Bible and the more I get to know this Jesus, the more liberated I feel as a woman. We just can't escape it. God is for women. This is an excerpt from my book, Sexless in the City. I am so excited that it is out and available for you to get your hands on or listen to audibly. You can go to sexlessinthecitybook.com to learn more and order or purchase it anywhere that you buy your books. Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, anywhere that makes you happy. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and I'm just so glad you're here. This podcast is designed to dig below the surface. We're going to talk about everything from life to love and pretty much everything in between. So go ahead and leave that Superman cape of having it all together at the door because life is freaking messy. Don't I know it. Now, not only are we going to be real, we're going to have some fun too, because Lord knows I will find any excuse to bring up Beyonce or the latest episode of The Bachelorette. So if you're a new friend, welcome. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective podcast on iTunes. And if you're an old friend, welcome back. And would you do me a quick favor? Hop on over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and written review. I would be so grateful. Finally, if something stands out to you in this episode, go on and slide into my DMs on Instagram. I love hearing from you. It's at The Refined Woman. Now let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to The Refined Collective Podcast. I am your host, Kat Harris, and a special shout out and thank you to Newsstand Studio here at Rockefeller Center. Yes, I am back in the lovely city of New York, and I'm just so grateful that I get to be in this fun, fancy podcast studio and with the chief engineer, Joe, in the house, making us sound all good. You guys need to know that like the refined woman, the refined collective is not just me, Kat Harris. Like there is a village of people that help make my dreams a reality. One of them being my incredible assistant. And I feel like that's even like not the best term to call Kitty. Kitty is my everything. The Refined Woman, the Refined Collective would not happen without her. So thank you, Kitty, for everything you do. I'm so grateful for you. And so many people email with Kitty and they think it's like a fake name because it's Cat and Kitty. So they think, oh, Cat just wants to pretend it's not her. So it can be someone else. And I'm like, no, really, like it is Kitty Cat. We are the Kitty Cat team. So it is a village. And speaking of it taking a village to make these dreams a reality, I want to thank our special Patreon community for being such a 
loyal, faithful community that helps keep our doors open. You guys are helping pay for my team and pay for this dream of the podcast to be out there. So thank you so much. If you want to join Patreon for as little as $5 a month, just go ahead and go to patreon.com slash the refined collective. And when you join, you get access to weekly VIP videos that I drop. They're about 10 to 15 minutes. I just did one on like real talk, what dating is like when you have a public platform and when you are a relationship coach coach and when you are not having sex until marriage. So um, those are pretty big hitters. So if you want to know what dating is really like for me, um, just go ahead and check out Patreon. All right. On to today's episode. Today is a topic I've been really excited to talk about. I'm so excited about it that I dedicated an entire chapter in my book, Sexless in the City, to it. We are talking about faith and feminism. Now, what comes to mind for you when you think of feminism? I know for me, the word feminist used to feel like a cuss word. And then it kind of felt like something I secretly wanted to learn more about and wanted to be okay with, but it felt confusing because it seemed out of alignment with my faith. So we're going to talk about it today. Caveat, I am no feminist expert. <laughs> like, And what I do know is as many shades of feminism as there are, are there denominations in the church today? So we're going to be speaking in general feminism terms and be gracious with us as we talk. And there is no better person to talk to today than the wonderful host of the Faith and Feminism podcast, Megan Chance. She is a writer, speaker, and former missionary who is passionate about empowering women and reclaiming feminism for the Christian faith. She's a prolific blogger, again, host of the Faith and Feminism podcast, and avid traveler. She also has a book coming out this May 11th called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. Megan, what's up, girl? Well, I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about faith and feminism because like you, I grew up in a conservative evangelical context, and it was a dirty word. We could not be feminists and we could not be Christian. So I'm excited mm. to talk about how actually we can. Yes. And uh, I, not only can we, I think it's something that Jesus wants. Mm. So yeah, I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, that. which even right there, the idea that Jesus could possibly be a feminist is a very provocative, and it almost feels like a political statement. Like, is Jesus a feminist? I mean, I feel like the 21-year-old cat would think that I'm a total heretic for even suggesting that. What about you? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I was definitely raised in a context in which feminism was evil. It was bad. It was the enemy. Um, And I, you know, I got older and I realized that wasn't the case. I mean, specifically in my context, um, you know, I was raised in a church where I wasn't allowed to lead or mm. teach or preach or really do anything except get married and have children. Mm. And when that didn't feel right to me, the only avenue I was left with was to become a missionary. Mm. I'm like, great, this is the way I can serve God because I can't pastor and I can't preach and I can't teach. Maybe I can be a missionary. Um, and so I got into missions work um, and specifically worked with sexually exploited trafficked women, um, other women who are dealing with the most gross injustices. And what I discovered through working through them is that God 
deeply, deeply cares about their flourishing. Mm. And I had this moment of revelation where I realized that what they were experiencing was due to power differentials, was due to the fact that men had power over them and that they were viewed as less than, Mm. which was the perfect segue to lead me into feminism. And I'm just going to define the word feminism right now for the listeners. Simply the dictionary, if you Google it, feminism is the equality or the fight for equality between men and women. Mm. Um, That's all it is. And there's been a lot of different meanings assigned to it. But you know what? There's a lot of different meanings assigned to Christianity. And we do not renounce that claim. Mm. So why should we renounce the true definition of feminism? Oh, that's, I, I love that you said that. And isn't it so interesting when you actually just look it up? It For me, when I started learning about feminism, I thought it was almost like being a kid and being scared of looking under your bed with the lights off. And then you flip the lights on and realize, oh, it's just my sock. Oh, <laughs> oh, feminism is just fighting for the equality of women. And isn't that what is in the beginning of the God story? We see God breathing life into creation and saying, let us make humans in our image, in our likeness. So because I exist as a human, male, female, whoever, I matter, I have worth, I have value, I have dignity, period, the end, from the inside out. The text doesn't ever say, well, men have a little bit more of the God image and women need to be quiet and keep their mouth shut because as Eliza Schlesinger says in her powerful stand-up, which I think should be a TED Talk, no one likes a lippy woman. And I think we're taught that. Mm-hmm. And I remember kind of the one of the changing points for me, Megan, was, <laughs> was when I watched a TED Talk by Chiminanda Gozziadici, and I found out about her from Beyonce because there's a clip of her TED Talk about women and the role of women and gender roles in Beyonce's song, Flawless. And I was like, who is this woman? I listened to We Should All Be Feminists. And she says, a feminist is a person who believes in the social, political, economic equality of the sexes. And I was like, oh, crap. I think I'm a feminist. And what do I do with that? And what does that even mean? And it just seemed so digestible and less scary. And so what I want to unpack for both of us is... First, what are some things, Megan, that you grew up believing about women that you no longer believe? Hmm. Man, the list is so long. <laughs> You're like, do you have five hours? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And a bottle of wine. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there, I mean, I don't even even know where to begin. So we both have, I grew up in, a, I already mentioned, I grew up in mm-hmm. a conservative evangelical context, but even outside of that conservative evangelical context, our society is full of messages of what it's like to be a, a boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. And if, and I remember some of my earliest childhood memories was, um, I was a very competitive child um, and a competitive, I'm a competitive person. I mm-hmm. really like board games. I like to win. It's apparently not a feminine trait, I've been told. Um, but I was like that as a kid. I was, you know, doing all the push-up contests, like beating kids in races. And I remember the boys never wanted me to play with them because I was a girl. Mm. And I heard, I grew up with these phase, phrases like, you run like a girl, you talk like a girl, you do all these things like a girl, as if it was a bad thing. Mm. 
And so right from the beginning, I'm getting messages around the age of five, like when I'm playing on the playground that as, as a girl, I'm less, I'm something that people use to make fun of other people. Um, I'm not as capable. I'm not as strong. I'm not as intelligent. And the messages kind of coincided with what I was getting in the church, which was I needed to grow up to serve my future husband. I feel like all of the teaching I got was not about how to develop me. It was how to make me a good wife and how to serve my husband and to respect him and to be submissive to him. And so I, you know, grew older, grew into, like, grew up in purity culture. I grew up um, in the 90s in an evangelical church. So um, I was taught from an early age that my body was shameful, something that needed to be hidden at all times. Should I show any parts of my body that aren't meant to be shown, then I would make men do bad things. Mm. Um, And so I would be responsible for their lust or for their actions. And so I knew I learned to hide my body. I learned to be ashamed of my body. When I started my period, I didn't tell anyone because I thought it was a shameful thing that I was made woman. Mm. Um, and so I continued to grow up with these ideas, but always in the back of my mind, I'm like something doesn't feel right about this. Like there's something in my body that I don't think this is God, but this is all I know. Mm. And so I feel like I have to follow these teachings lest I be called unchristian. And at that time, Christianity, Jesus was everything to me. And so if you're telling me that I can't be outspoken or teach or lead as a woman, then okay, I won't do that because I think apparently this is what God doesn't want. Mm. Um, And it wasn't until, like I said, I got into missions work and I saw how these scripts that we've been given specifically, I mean, if we're going to die, there's so many different aspects, but if we're going to die into purity culture, I was raised to believe that I was responsible for a man's lust or his actions based on how I dressed or acted. And uh, I remember the first time I was sexually assaulted, I was 13, a stranger came up and grabbed my breast And he walked away and I thought it was my fault. I didn't tell a soul for 10 years because it was my shame. I had suddenly become a licked lollipop or whatever analogy they use to describe young girls who are fallen. And I didn't tell anyone. And it wasn't until I started working with women who were sexually exploited, raped, uh, the most atrocious things to them, that I started to see some similarities in the messaging that I received as a young girl and the messages that they were receiving. Mm. And that's when I started to wonder, like, oh, I wonder if these gender roles I've been taught, I wonder if they're actually biblical or Mm. if this is something that's more cultural or historical or traditional. And what I discovered is... I dove, you know, I dove into my Bible, did a lot of reading specifically on how Jesus taught, treated women. I dug into those problematic verses that is always thrown at us that Paul gives us mm-hmm. and realized, actually, I think Jesus is a feminist and I could back that up all day long. We'll get there later, I'm sure. But all of these teachings are actually harmful. Mm-hmm. They are actually causing harm, not only to me as a survivor of sexual assault, but also to women who are told their voices aren't valuable. And how, like, how does that affect, you know, if you're a young boy growing up in the church and you're told that women are there to serve you, mm. which is what I was taught, I was there to serve men. What does that make them think about women if yeah. they're not capable of leading or teaching? Right. Are they going to value their voice? Are they going to treat them as equals? I think we can see very quickly that that's not the case. Yeah. Um, so I hope that answers yeah, your question. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? I say this in my book, and I've said it quite a bit on the podcast recently in regards to the church and society actually 
putting the weight of sexual purity or the male gaze on the weight of women's shoulders, I believe that it holds a very low view of men. And Mm -hmm. as you were speaking, what dawned on me, and I don't know why I haven't thought of this because it's so blatant, but sometimes things are so visible, they're invisible, but it has a low view of humanity. Not only does it have a low view of men, Mm -hmm. boys will be boys. It also has a low view of women. And I don't know why I haven't thought about it before, but it's like when we act from a space that boys will be boys and women are wrong for existing or we can't lead, we can't use our gifts. We have, it's like we're going down a mountain, driving down the highway in Colorado, which is like so scary when you're going downhill for like 10 miles. And then you have to downshift. We've like downgraded, downshifted what it means to be made in the image of God. We all suffer when women are oppressed. We all Mm -hmm. suffer when we have a low view of men. We all suffer when we have a low view of women. And another thing that stood out to me about what you just said is in regards to periods. Now, I grew up in a household. I'm one of six kids, five girls, one boy. He's the oldest. We have even have a girl dog. And I've been grappling recently with even I grew up in a house full of women. And my mom was very vocal about periods, uh, normalizing masturbation. I still like I'm 35 years old and I feel embarrassed when I buy tampons at the store. I'm like, oh, no, this is weird and gross. And I've really I actively try to walk away from that narrative. But it is still something that I'm walking away from. And it reminded me of the Amy Schumer special on Netflix when she's pregnant. Did you see that? I have been told to watch it a million times and I haven't watched it yet. You got to watch it. But she talks about how confusing of a message we get when girls start their period. It's like, oh my gosh, you're a woman. Welcome to the woman club. And then you gross. Here's a mm-hmm. box of tampons. Hide them. Now don't ever talk about it again. <laughs> and how much of a confusing message that is. Now, I didn't grow up in a, a Christian home or an evangelical culture it, like it seems like you you did. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I did grow up in the South. Yeah. So, and, and I, I became a Christian my senior year of high school. And so here's a few things that I believed about women that I no longer believe. This one's really hard for me to admit because, wow, I believed that a woman should not be president of the United States of America. Did you believe that? Um, I was taught that, that I wanted to be the president at the yeah, same time. Come so on, it girl. Was a, it's a difficult, yeah. uh, difficult reckoning. <laughs> I was like, well, because I didn't believe a woman could preach. So if a woman couldn't pastor a church, mm-hmm. if it was a quote unquote sin for women to teach publicly in mixed company, then it was 1000% a sin for a woman to be president and most powerful right. leader in Western culture. So I think what felt so confusing is I loved Jesus. And so there were these internal things that felt really hard for me. I have always been a loudmouth, and I have opinions. I have things to say. I'm a why person. And I became a Christian and two weeks later was thrown a mic from the mega church I went to. So I was constantly talking in mixed company at youth group. But then once it transitioned into college and beyond, I realized women aren't a part of the conversation. And I heard the verses in the New Testament that I want to talk with you about that women should not teach. And that I just felt like, wow, like this doesn't make sense to me, but God's infinite. I'm finite and the finite can't really totally understand the infinite. 
So mm-hmm. I'm just going to submit to this. Mm-hmm. I also believed that I needed to submit to pretty much all the men in my life as spiritual authority and leaders, which I think one thing that that did for me was it created a deep distrust in myself. And I stayed at toxic churches way longer than I should have stayed at. I stayed in toxic relationships with men way longer than I should have stayed in. I stayed at jobs with toxic male bosses way longer than I should have because I thought, oh, I need to submit to their leadership and they know more than me. I believed that guys don't like women like me. Christian guys really want girls that can stay quiet. And to be frank, I still struggle with that, even though I'm like, you're a feminist and you're married. So clearly there's guys out there and I know there are guys out there, but that's one that (laughs) I still struggle with because it seems like guys Mm -hmm. tell me that they want a strong woman. But often my experience, I actually just talked about this in one of my Patreon videos, has been once a guy gets to know what I actually talk about publicly or that I run my own business, and I've been told multiple times, men don't want to date girls with more than 1,000 Instagram followers. I'm like, oh, you actually don't want a strong woman. You want a girl that is a yes man. And so those are some of the things I grew up thinking about. And oh, and definitely God was not a feminist. (laughs) Like, no way. No way. <laughs> Did anything come up for you while I was sharing my stuff? Oh, maybe all of them. And mm-hmm. um, just, I, okay. So I am also loud mouth, loud mouth, unite. I've always been loud. Um, I've also been told, I remember like when you're talking about like Christian men who don't want strong women, I remember a guy that I was kind of seeing, it was really ambiguous because it wasn't a healthy relationship. <laughs> But I remember saying one time that I was loud and he's like, you're not loud. And I'm like, have you met me? Like, I am opinionated. I am loud. And he was almost like changing who I was so Mm. I could fit into this role that he thought women should be in. And so I actually really relate with you saying that men, I couldn't, I was so frustrated for so long because I couldn't find any Christian men that were okay with me being outspoken or heaven forbid a feminist. It was out, the word was out that I was a feminist and I worked at a missions organization and I would have friends who'd be like, oh, you know, so-and-so is interested in you, but I told them you were a feminist Mm. and they weren't interested anymore. Um, and so, like, yeah, I understand, like, what that was like. I didn't get married until, which it felt old to me, but, like, I'm now realizing that it wasn't old. I, I didn't get married until I was 28. Um, <gasps> but it had been many, many years before that of, <laughs> of being rejected because I was outspoken. Mm. Um, and I even remember there was this one guy um, that we were, I talk about this in my book, but yeah, we were, it was that unhealthy, ambiguous relationship. He was like the quote unquote popular, charismatic, like everyone thought he was the coolest. And I thought I was so lucky that he was taking interest in me, mm-hmm. even though he was very ambiguous and dropping all these weird hints about like, I don't know if you're my wife yet, but we're not going to date like that kind of stuff, which was just very confusing. Um, but he one time told me that he thought that men should be the provider, the protector and, um, the provider, the protector, the pursuer. And I remember when he told me that I was definitely had worked a lot with women and saw kind of how these narratives, if the man is the protector, the provider, the pursuer, then the woman 
Um, Converse has to be the protected, so she's vulnerable. Mm. She has to be uh, the pursued, so she can't go after the things she wants. And as a provider, she's not supposed to be like financially independent. And I remember thinking all of these things as he said, this is this is what I want you to be, or this is what I should be. And I remember it was, I knew in that moment I was in an unhealthy, whatever we were, ambiguous relationship when I agreed with him because I thought that's what he wanted. And that's what I thought Christian women should want. Mm. And realizing it was such a weird moment because several months later, I realized that this was what I was fighting against for sexually exploited women, that these women became sexually exploited because they didn't have any other resources. They were expected to provide, or sometimes their family even sold them into sex trafficking or, um, you know, the, the abuse stories are insane, but it all boils down to the fact that they did not have options. Mm-hmm. And I saw the similar theme in my life that I felt like I did not have options. Mm-hmm. I could only be a submissive housewife. And so I mean, what was happening to them was so much worse, but it was the same kind of themes that I think was keeping women trapped. And so to say, yes, yeah, I did. I could relate with that. I thought women couldn't be more, but something just knew that was wrong. And so I, you know, I started to challenge it. And like, obviously we can get into deeper of why I feel like there's a very strong biblical case for feminism, but I do absolutely relate with that. And so I want to tell you about my, maybe a hopeful story about the man I married to, we've been married for four years now, 32. And um, yeah, so I met him at a wedding and Ooh, I met him I at a stories. place where I was very frustrated um, with men. Yeah, I was very frustrated with Christian men. And I was like, you know what? I like. I was at the point where like a couple weeks previous, a random guy asked for my number at a restaurant, like my server. And I just went on a date with him. So I'm like, whatever. Like I was just, you know, feeling free. And so I saw this cute guy at a wedding and I was like, I'm going to ask him to dance. So I made the first move. I asked him to dance. I knew nothing about him. And we started talking. And uh, I remember the first song that played when I asked him to dance, but I asked him to dance before the song played. It was At Last by Etta James. And I'm like, no, not this song. Like, this is my favorite song. It's going to be my first, like, wedding dance song. I can't have this memory with this random guy, but I, he already had my hands, whatever. And so we started dancing. He asked me for a second dance. We were talking about, oh, are you a Christian? Like, what do you do? Whatever. And, you know, the answers were good so far. And so um, he kept on trying to talk to me, but it was too loud on the dance floor. So I pulled him aside and I, you know, I was like, I'm not wasting my time here. So I just gave him the longest feminist speech about my experience <laughs> working with sexually exploited women, with oppressed women, realizing what the root of their oppression was and being very clear that this is what I was about and this is what I was going to do. And so if you're not interested, bye. Like, <laughs> I'm not wasting my time. And I remember him just like staring at me. And I'm like, I don't know if this is going to end poorly or because I was ranting or if it was going to end well. And he said, wow, I've never met someone more passionate about anything in my life. And the rest is history. We're married. We've been married for four years. He is the best partner of my life. And I think, I mean, I, there, I don't think there's a magic formula for finding that person, but for him and I, like, it was so important that I was who I was up front um, and was clear with who, what I believed up front, because I knew that was something that in the past disqualified me from being a Christian partner. Mm. And so that was really important for me. And yeah. 
Uh, Grandma, married, have two dogs. So, <laughs> When it comes to paying off debt, it can often feel like an uphill battle. I really understand this because a few years ago, I got out of $30,000 of debt. I truly know the pain of high interest rates that result in minimum monthly payments that keep you trapped in an endless cycle of debt. I have good news for you. Upstart can help you get ahead. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score, like your income and employment history. This means they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com refined. That's upstart.com slash refined. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. So that's upstart.com slash refined. I've kind of had three strikeouts in the last week with guys, and I've been discouraged. I And sometimes I struggle admitting that online or publicly because I'm like, there are great guys out there. And I'm like, well, I mean, I was on the phone with my mom last week and I said, mom, I strike out more than anyone I know when it comes to romance. Like, I am so tired of striking out. And she goes, you know what, Catherine? That's because you put yourself out there. Put yourself out there. You know, the mom-isms. My mom always says, you know, you have to kiss a lot of frogs. And I was like, mom, I have put in my 10,000 hours. <laughs> I've put in my 10,000 hours. I've kissed all the frogs. <laughs> And so my relationship coach friend, Amanda Blair, she says seeing is believing. And sometimes we have to see what's possible for other people to believe that it's possible for us. And so I think it's very easy to have an evidence file cabinet of how my femininity is a liability. And if that's my belief, and I've had very real experiences that add to that belief, then everything that does or doesn't happen goes to that file cabinet, that evidence hunt. And so I want to be committed to acknowledging my disappointment and acknowledging those feelings and being committed to an evidence hunt that being feminine, being a woman is my secret sauce, is my asset, and that I would not be happy in any relationship where that's not a high value Mm -hmm. to my partner. So thank you for sharing that. And also, I've never heard the script flipped the way you flipped it, i.e. protector. Do you say protector, provider? And what was the third one? Pursuer. Pursuer. Okay. Because I've never thought of it in the sense of, oh, that's making me the vulnerable, the Bambi with a broken leg that needs to be rescued. And something I have struggled with is feeling like, yes, I'm a feminist and it would be really nice if I didn't have to work when I got married. It would be really nice to (laughs) get to be a stay-at-home mom if that's what I wanted. And I've really had to be honest with myself about how I say that I believe in the equality of humans. And then there's also this other part of me that is like, I've been working since I was 10 years old and I'm ready for a break. And so I want a partner that wants to provide for me. And 
It's still a struggle for me. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm 35 years old and I'm tired. However, the place that I want to live in and the place that I step into is the place of why would I ever not give an, a man a chance if he didn't make as much money as me? Why would I ever yeah. judge another human for chasing their dreams? I've chased my dreams for the last 15 years. And only in the last few years have I been experiencing quote unquote financial success. It's something that I constantly challenge myself with because it can be fun and sexy to say, oh, I'm a feminist. I believe this. But then when I really have to search my own heart and experience to dig below the surface, what are still the beliefs in me that don't view men and women as equal? And that can be yeah. humbling for me to admit. Yeah, I mean, but that's, I mean, here's the thing. I think when it, what it boils down to is feminism is wants men to choose their lives and women to choose their lives. And so if you, I think there's this misnomer that if you're a feminist, you like hate stay-at-home moms. That yeah. is not true. Not at all. If you want to be a stay-at-home mom, girl, I empower you. You might have to have some discussions with your partner on what that looks like. But you both like there's compromise. And I think that's what's so frustrating about a lot of the complementarian teaches teachings we're given is that, you know, the man has to be out providing and doing all the things a woman is supposed to be home. But I think that completely negates the giftings that God has given us. And there is room and there should be room to compromise and talk about how you can support one another in your dreams. And so I know for me in my context, uh, my husband was a chemical engineer. He was making good money. He hated it. And I was like, well, I don't want you to work a job that you hate. So um, I was at the time working on getting this book published. And so I said, well, I will take um, more hours for this part-time job while you quit your job to go back to coding school. He wanted to be a computer programmer to go back to coding school and get, get a job there. And so now he is to have both of us work from home. I just had to tell him to get off um, the video conference call, whatever he was doing, so I could get on this podcast and share our internet. But the point is, I think there's a way you can support one another. He has supported me in my dreams, and I have supported him in his dreams. Yeah. And there isn't a formula. And I'm so sick of the formulas that say marriage should be one way. I think it's a beautiful meshing of gifts and talents and conversation on how you can support one another. And Dustin loves his job now. He loves computer programming and he loves working from home. And that was a goal we both had. And I love what I do. I don't get paid like anything and he supports me for the most part. Um, but it's just been really cool to see how we can support each other. And so I think that's another thing about feminism. People misunderstand. It's like, oh, I can't be a stay at home mom and then a feminist. I'm like, you damn well can. Like you can work um, from home and still believe in the equality and uh, the rights of women even if you're choosing to stay at home. And I think that's an incredible passion. If that's what you want to do, I really empower women to stay at home if that's what they want to do. I just want women to have a choice because I think overall, if we're looking at the history of the world. If we're looking at what is ailing women today, it's a lack of choices. It's being forced into a box. And like I said earlier, when I worked with sexually exploited women, they were in situations, oftentimes they're single moms. They have no way to provide for their children. No way, because they don't have college education. They don't have whatever. And 
because they have been left with so few options. This is the literally the only thing they can do to put food on the table so their children doesn't don't starve. Mm. And if where I was working in the Philippines, uh, climate change is causing huge issues there. there. There's hurricanes, way bigger hurricanes than they ever had before, wiping out entire provinces, so these little islands. And so they're sending their daughters who grew up on a, you know, a province without education to the city saying, hey, we're going to starve unless you feed us. And that's how they get roped into the sex trade and trafficked is because they have literally no other options. And so when I look at the world, when I look at why so many women are harmed, it's oftentimes because we have a lack of choices. Mm -hmm. We aren't encouraged to, you know, get educated. So we're not stuck. And, you know, even if it's not sex trafficking, there's a lot of other situations where women can be exploited. And so I just, I just really believe that we should make a world where women are educated and have a choice and the life that they live. But so often that's not the case. Yes. And even as you're talking about the power of choice, I can't help but think about, isn't that what is so profoundly beautiful about the gospel that God didn't create robots. Mm -hmm. God created humans who have the capacity to choose love and choose relationship. Mm -hmm. We can choose God. We cannot choose God. God does not force God's self on humanity. God says the invitation is open Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Like, but the choice is on me. And I think there's something powerful about that is not that we are obligated or have no other choice, but that I choose to be a follower of Jesus because it's what I want and desire. Because there's something in me, even after all the bullshit that has been going down in the American church for years now, I'm like, the Jesus story, the Jesus of the scriptures is still the story that I want to be wrong about. It's still the path I choose to follow. And I also think it's what makes God's love for humanity so powerful, that God doesn't need, God isn't forced to, God isn't obliged to love humanity unconditionally, but God wants us. God desires connection with humanity. And I just feel like it's so much of it goes back to choice. And so I love that. It's like, I feel like you're kind of honing in on one of the big tenets of feminism is having the option to choose. So in that, I want to ask you, you talked about some of the problematic verses in the New Testament that mm-hmm. have been used to really quiet women. And so could you unpack what you believe to be the most problematic verse and maybe give your perspective of what that verse means? Yeah. So I'm going to make a caveat here. I'm not a biblical scholar. Everyone, I'm not a biblical scholar. I read a lot of books from biblical scholars, so I'm not going to do as justice. And so right now I'm actually going to give a shout out to an incredible, incredible book. I think everyone should buy it. I just read it. I just had her on my podcast. Her name is Beth Allison Barr. She wrote a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And so her whole premise as a historian who's been studying this, she's not, she's a historian at Baylor University, which is a Christian university. And uh, basically what we know of biblical feminism 
Um, this, what I described earlier with women being submissive, women having to serve men, women not having a voice, this is actually historical context, not biblical context. And we can definitely get into that, but I want to say I am, she's going to say it way better than I am. Um, so all of that to say, I think there's a lot of problematic voice, uh, verses that are used. I want to say are used in a way that is harmful and used in a way without context. And so the first one, the one that I think I have struggled with the most, I've struggled with a lot of them, yeah. to be honest, um, is wives submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of his church, for his body, for which he is savior. As the church submits to Christ, also wives submit to their husbands and everything. And then it says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up to her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing water through the word. And it goes on, um, about how husbands ought to love their wives and wives ought to love their husbands. And so I want to talk about, and I think there's a problem that we often have is people, at least something maybe you have heard, is that the Bible should be read plainly and simply. Have you ever heard that phrase being used to you? I have not, but I was also a Bible major in college. You haven't. My first class in college okay, was Hermeneutics great. 101. So before scripture is applied oh. to you, there's the who, what, where, when, and why. So I understand okay. the vernacular. Yes. Okay. So I'm glad that you have hermeneutics. I think it's really important. <laughs> um, but that this verse, I'm specifically, so I'm going to talk about before I got married. Before I got married, my father-in-law uh, told me that I needed to obey my husband and everything obey was the word he used. He said it should be my vows. And I didn't like that um, because I'm not a dog. But um, I remember when I was having conversations with him, this is what he kept on coming back to. A plain and simple reading of scripture, we're using Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands. But if we're looking at the context in which this is happening, if we're looking at when this happened, we're looking at Greco-Roman household codes, which was extremely, extremely patriarchal. And in this patriarchal society, women oftentimes weren't even part of the conversation. So if someone is going to be talking, they're going to be talking just to the men. Women aren't even part of the conversation. And there's certainly not going to be any context about husbands loving their wives because it's all going to be about women being basically the property of the husband. And so what people don't realize when they look at this verse is number one, if we, I'm, let me zoom out of this, get into this full chapter and make sure that I'm talking about the right uh, context. Um, yes. Okay. So if we look and zoom out of this, we go to Ephesians 21. So before it starts with why submit to your husband, everyone thinks it starts there. It actually says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this whole passage that we're looking at, it starts with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the, Paul is talking to the church and he's saying, you guys should submit to one another in love. And talking about the context of these Greco-Roman household codes that they have, this idea that, you know, Paul is even talking to, to husbands, love your wives, give up your life for her. Um, love, you know, love your wife more than your own body. I think it says, yeah, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, not more than their own bodies, as their own bodies. So love your wife as if she was you. This is something that is completely revolutionary to culture at this time because women were just not even part of this you know, the equation. We don't care about how we treat women. They're essentially property. So the fact that, you know, 
Paul is even addressing uh, people to talk about how to love your wives well is revolutionary. And the fact that this, the opening stanza of the line, submit to one another, for me, I think this is just walking out how it looks like in their culture. How do we submit to one another? Like, I believe in mutual submission. What is loving your wife if it is not considering her needs and her wants and what she, what she desires to do, the things that... So when, when I look at me and my husband's relationship, I could say that I submit to him. I could say he submits to me, but mm-hmm. I feel like those words submit and love are used interchangeably. And if we're looking at the whole thing, it's saying submit to one another. It mm-hmm. doesn't say only wives submit to their husband, but we always start right there without seeing the context of the full verse. And like I said, I'm not a biblical scholar. There are biblical scholars that do this, but Beth Allison Barr's book is a fantastic resource for this. Yeah. And I think it's so crucial that you brought up the text. The chapter starts with a mutual submission, but Ephesians, Mm -hmm. the whole book is Paul writing to the church of Ephesus in the cultural context of being a very metropolitan city. It was a trade city. So there are a lot of people coming in and out. And it was to a group of people who were new to their faith And so this book is filled with practical wisdom and insight on every front. But so much of the book is, all right, friends, submit to each other. We should value unity among Christians, non-Christians, in the home, in the community. Let's advocate for unity. And so then after, you know, kids, you know, submit to your parents, friends, submit to each other. Then it's, let's talk about the, the marital relationship. And you're so right. It would have been scandalous and provocative and completely countercultural to start a statement that in the people who follow the ways of Jesus and their household, the husbands and wives submit to each other. The mm. wife is not a property for a man mm. to own. And in fact, in the Jesus marriage, men aren't supposed to run around on their wives, even though that's what everyone else in culture Mm -hmm. is doing. They're not supposed to be in loveless marriages. The invitation is that the God marriage would be one where love abounds. I think submission is such a triggering word for me. For me, I think of a mutual respect. Do we have a mutual respect for each other? Do we want to honor each other? And I had a conversation with my aunt. It's been years ago now. And her and my uncle have been married for... 30 years about. And I come from a broken home and they have this like beautiful, happy marriage. And so sometimes I feel like growing up, I would just watch the way they interacted with each other because it felt so foreign to the broken home experiences that I had. And a few years ago, we were on a hike. I asked my aunt, how do you guys make it work? And she goes, every day, our mission is to outserve the other person. And I said, well, that's all cute and nice. What does that look like? Then she said, well, your uncle hates waking up early. He hates waking up early so much. And he doesn't really like his job. But he's faithfully been at this job because he's wanted to help put our kids through college. And he's wanted to provide for his family in that way. And so something that she does is every night before she goes to bed, She grinds up his coffee, puts it in the coffee pot and puts on a timer so that when he wakes up in the morning, the coffee is already brewed. And 
And I thought about that and it just seems so profound to me. It's something so little. She doesn't have to do that. He didn't ask her to do it. It doesn't really save him that much time, but it's a posture of how can I love this person well? And I think that is that is what this text is about, is a mutual radical sort of love, of respect. And I see you and how can I help you win today? And winning isn't winning unless we create win-wins. So if Megan, if you lose, we all lose. If I lose, we all lose. If we're not creating win-wins in our lives, we're not actually living the abundant life that God invites us into. So that's my TED Talk on Ephesians 5. (laughs) I mean, and I want to share more. So like I said, I don't super focus. I I think part of me is still a little bit triggered because these verses have used against me so much. I can argue with them in context, but what I like looking at more is the way the Bible does empower women. Yes, let's hear it, girl. So I can talk to you about that all day. Yes. So why don't you give me like two or three of your favorite verses as we wrap up? Okay. Yeah. As we're wrapping up. Okay. It's not necessarily a verse. It's a story. Everyone is familiar with the story of Mary and Martha. I Well, probably not everyone. A lot of people are familiar with the story of Mary and Martha. Um, so for those who may not be familiar, it's a story in the Bible where Jesus is coming to visit with his disciples to Mary and Martha's house. And Mary and Martha are sisters. And like I said, and I've established earlier, um, we're in a time where women are kind of seen as property. They're in places in the home. They're not really supposed to be outside the home. They shouldn't really be interacting with men. They certainly shouldn't be learning from a rabbi. So that context is all very important. Women are not valued. And so we come and we open into the story and we see Martha is running around preparing the house for Jesus, which isn't necessarily a bad thing she's performing like her culture taught her to. This is how I serve and love well, and that's not a bad thing. But she, so instead of cleaning and helping Mary, or Martha, Mary sits down at the seat of, feet of Jesus to listen to him speak. And it's really important to note that what Mary was doing was something that was so outrageously against the gender roles of that time, to sit at the feet of a rabbi when you're not supposed to be learning or teaching or what, any of that stuff. Um, but that also signaled that she wanted to learn and teach as well. And as oftentimes when you sat at the feet of a rabbi, it was a signal that you would want to be a rabbi yourself. And so what she's doing is offensive in so many different ways. And she's neglecting her woman duty to prepare the house to feed her visitors. And so, of course, Martha's like, oh, whoa, like, hey, Jesus, she is not following her prescribed gender role. She's not she's not helping me clean. And he's, she says, Jesus, like, help tell Mary to help me clean because uh, this is what she should be doing. And my favorite, one of my favorite lines that Jesus ever speaks is he says that Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. And I think a lot of the times we kind of just like, I don't know, we just kind of glide over the the profoundness. I feel like so often God, Jesus gives these one-liners that if you think about what that actually meant, how countercultural that one line is. It's insane. He says, Mary has chosen what is better. So what is he saying? Her breaking with her gender normative roles of serving and cleaning, she has chosen what is better for her and it will not be taken from her. And I feel like in that one line, he just just destroys this whole notions of gender roles that we have been taught to like subscribe to our whole life. And I think there's so many other instances of women early on in the Bible leading, teaching, preaching. Um, We have Junia, who was, by the way, um, translators, early translators, 
turned her into a man, into Junius, because they thought, you know, women can't lead. So we're going to change the sex of her. Did you know about this? I did not know that. Yeah. I was a Bible major. So, did not know that. Hello. Yeah. So learn something. They, new. Yeah. Some translator changed her into Junius so she would be a man and it would make sense in their context. Google it. There's a lot of information out there, but Junia Junius is a very clear example of women actually being changed to fit this gender role. Um, and then we look at Phoebe, who is a deacon. We look like a Priscilla and Aquila. And the fact that, I, and I'm probably messing up their names, but Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is mentioned first before her husband as a church leader. Um, Jesus was supported by women. Jesus entrusted women with the gospel. They were the first ones to see the risen Christ. If that's not a statement of believed women, listen to them teach, they should listen to them preach. I don't know what is. And then if we even go into the Old Testament, each time, I feel like almost every single time a woman is mentioned, it's something that we should really pay attention to because we're living in a very patriarchal time. So let's just think of a couple of stories. Esther, why did she get mentioned? Because she disobeyed her husband and saved people. She disobeyed. She broke with her gender roles to save an entire race of people. We look at um, uh, Shipra and Pua, which is a story that not a lot of people know about. But in Exodus, the Pharaoh told them to kill every baby boy, and they refused. And they did it in a sneaky way by kind of lying. Oh, they just give birth so fast we can't kill the babies, you know? Um, and then there's Huldah, who was a prophetess. Like, I could literally go on. Deborah led a nation. I could go on all day about the women that we do see empowered. And so if we're seeing this seemingly contradiction between these verses, these problematic verses, compared to the rest of Scripture, where women are very clearly empowered, in charge, leading nations, we should at least ask a question of why why are these verses being read differently? And, what, and how can we dig? And there's a lot of resources out there, but that's just a few of the very many stories in the Bible of women being empowered and leading and teaching and preaching and just living how they're, you know, and their giftings. Yes. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for sharing that because I've done so much research and there's still so much I don't know. And I just learned so much from you. I didn't know about Junius and a couple of the Old Testament names that you said that I don't want to... Shipra yes. and Yes. I've never heard of those women. And so I think just kind of final thought here is I think about back to the beginning of how you defined feminism. I mean, I'm just going to go with a dictionary definition. Yeah. This one I use is the equality between the sexes. Equality between the sexes. And then the one I have from Chiminanda Gozzi Adichie from We Should All Be Feminists. A feminist is a person who believes in the social, political, economic equality of the sexes. And if I take those thoughts and definitions into account and ask the question, is God a feminist? The only conclusion I can draw is yes. Yep. And so if you're listening to this and this feels wild or crazy or shocking, that's okay. That That's okay. Welcome to the club. Just... Be curious. Research Junius. Research Ephesians 5. Listen to Megan's podcast, Faith and Feminism. Check out my book, Sexless in the City. I have a whole chapter dedicated to Jesus and feminism, and I actually have an entire chapter dedicated to Ephesians 5 as well. Um, so be curious. I think growth starts the moment that we choose to step outside of our comfort zones. And there's a Grace Hopper quote 
she says something along these lines. The most damaging phrase in our language is it's always been done this way. Mm, That's good. Just because we grew up as women, just because I grew up as a woman and learned women don't talk, women can't be presidents. To be a good Christian means I need to be quiet. Just because that's the way it's been done for centuries and millennia doesn't mean that's the way it needs to be done or doesn't mean that's the most truthful way of walking out in our lives. So Megan, thank you for being here today. Can you let us know where we can get your book and stay in touch with you? Yeah. So you can just, I mean, my name is a mouthful. Um, it's Megan Chance and I will just spell it for you. M-E-G-H-A-N-T-S-C-H-A-N-Z as in zebra. Um, yeah, you can find me on all of the channels. My website is named Megan Chance. My Instagram is Megan Chance. My Twitter is Megan Chance. I am the only Megan Chance in the world. Um, and so any of those, um, places will send you to the book. But if you want to go directly to Amazon or InterVarsity Press, they are my publisher. The book is called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. And uh, yeah, I talk a lot about, I mean, I think, Kat, it's so important that you talk about some of you might feel uncomfortable. And I just want to say that's okay. And clearly both of us have been there. Um, But I really think it is important if you're feeling something, you know what? I am curious. I'm a little afraid I'm a little judging, you know, these two maybe right now about what they're talking about, but I am a little bit curious about more. I, I think that's the Holy Spirit, and I think you should trust it, and I think you should broaden your perspectives because uh, the last thing I want to say is so much of the teaching we've been given in the church is given through a white male perspective, um, through white male teaching. And white males aren't necessarily bad, but I'm just saying that when you are a woman or a person of color who has lived oppression, you're going to see different things in scripture than what a white man will say. So there's a reason that we maybe have never heard of the story of Shipra and Pua because women haven't been preaching the Bible. And if I was preaching the Bible, if I was a lot, oh, I do, I don't, I'm not a pastor, but I do preach the Bible. I would be telling those stories because that story is important to me as a woman showing resistance. And so I just encourage you to press into that. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Um, because I think God is bigger than what we've been told. So, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Megan. So what's coming up for you as you hear these questions, as you hear these scriptures, as you hear my experience, Megan's experience, maybe you feel relieved. Oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. Maybe you feel scared. Maybe you feel uncertain. Maybe you don't know how you feel. I don't know how you feel in all of it. I want to leave you with a few questions to dig into. Growing up, what did you learn about being a woman? From church, from culture, from home, from school? How have those narratives shaped what you view about yourself and as the female experience today? What do you think about the idea that Jesus could be a feminist? What do you think feminism is? Is there something you resonated with in this episode? Write it down. Is there something that you didn't resonate with? Write it down. Process it. What questions do you still have? If there's anything I can encourage you with is this. Be willing to go on a journey. Be willing to look at things that you've believed as true and then look at what are the beliefs underneath the beliefs? What's the belief underneath a woman shouldn't be president? 
What's the belief under, I should look for a protector? I had never thought about what Megan had said that, oh, the counter to that is that I am a vulnerable person that needs protection. So be curious, be willing to maybe simmer a little bit in this episode. And all in all, I'm grateful that you are here. I'm grateful that you are listening. Thank you for being a part of this community. And until next time, I will talk to you soon.